Hey everyone, it's Paul here. You're listening to part seven in our Problem of Evil series. If you haven't done so already, I encourage you to go back, listen to part six, part five in particular, before jumping into today's episode. You're really going to need to understand the theology of Aquinas and understand the theology of Augustine. If you haven't done at least that, you probably want to start there. But then again, if you haven't gone through and understood the theology of Origen and Gregory of Nyssa and Platonism and Neoplatonism, you might not understand Augustine. And then you might not understand Origen if you don't understand Justin Martyr, and you can kind of see how this thing goes. So I might recommend, recommend if you haven't started this series at all, maybe go back, start with episode one, turn up the speed to one and a half times if you want to really fly through it, and, and start from the beginning. Even as I've been going through and doing my research and getting all my content together and even recording these episodes, I'll get done and go, wow, all right, I'm seeing some things. I'm seeing some connections here that I, I haven't seen before until I've done it in this particular manner. So I might encourage you to start with episode one, or I should say part one, and uh, work your way through here to part seven. Today's episode is brought to you by Shema Apparel. Shema's been sponsoring this podcast for the last few episodes, and I hope you've had an opportunity to check them out. They're an ethical fashion brand that employs survivors of human trafficking, and, and they pay them a livable wage. It's a really important way for these, particularly these women from all over the globe who've been rescued from trafficking and are now out of the brothels. They're out of the places that have actually, in some weird way, provided them shelter, albeit nobody would want to live in that sort of shelter. But now they have to make a way for themselves in the world, and Shema Apparel is helping them do that. Not only that, but it is some of the most comfortable clothing I've ever worn, made from all organic fibers, like organic bamboo. The organic bamboo shirt is seriously, I've talked about before, it's the most comfortable shirt. I've ever worn. And you'll feel good not only just wearing the clothing because it's super comfortable, you'll feel good knowing that you're doing something about evil and suffering in the world. So check out Shema Apparel at shamaapparel.com or find the link in the description of this podcast. Martin Luther lived from 1483 to 1546. While there were many movements of reform aimed at correcting some of the perceived theological, ecclesial, and moral failures of the Catholic Church in the centuries preceding Martin Luther, Luther's posting of his famous 95 Theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg in 1517 undoubtedly sparked a much more revolutionary reformation. It's a revolutionary reformation that forever changed history. Not just the history of the church, but the history of the world. Luther was a devout Augustinian friar who initially thought that Pope Leo X simply must have no idea about the corrupt system of indulgences that were exploiting people on the local level in places like Wittenberg. Luther was horribly wrong, though. Pope Leo X wasn't just aware of the exploitative practice. He was all for the practice. Now, what were indulgences? Indulgences were deeply tied to the Catholic theology surrounding this idea called penance, which developed in the late medieval church. Penance was a sacrament, and it's, this is something we've talked about before. A sacrament is something the church has labeled a means of grace. That is a, a way by which God's grace in this spiritual domain, in heaven, can be mediated to an individual, to an individual person. How is it that God and his grace can be somehow uh, transferred through the, the mysterious spiritual dimension of space and time to you as an individual and actually change and transform your life? And the church, the Catholic Church, historically called these things sacraments. These were specifically blessed actions and activities that the Catholic Church saw as being a means of grace, a portal to receiving the grace of God. And penance was one of those sacraments. This was a sacrament that was meant to cover sins committed by people 
after they had already been baptized. Now, when you were baptized, you were washed free of your sins. You were a new creature, right? But what happens if you sinned after baptism? See, this is the sort of question that the Catholic Church, especially in the late medieval period, was really wrestling with. Well, people are still sinning. What happens if they sin after they've been baptized and washed clean of their of their sins? It reminds me of an experience I had, actually. It's a really good question. It's a, it reminds me of an experience I had that really messed with my entire theology in high school. I went to a Christian high school and played basketball, and we had a crosstown rival that was also another Christian Christian high school. And one day we were kind of walking around our, our local downtown area and we saw people holding signs up that said, God hates sinners, homosexuals are going to burn in hell. You know, the, the stuff of Westboro Baptist. And I, I looked over at people that were marching around holding these signs and I, I actually, I noticed that one of the guys looked really familiar. He was actually the point guard of the crosstown rival, and I was the point guard of my, my, my uh, Christian school, and we went over to him and said, dude, what are you doing out here? What's going on? And as I began to talk to him, he had been convinced in this really, it was, it was a cult that I, I do believe he eventually left. He had become convinced that once a Christian is baptized, he can sin no more. And they were part of this group that was teaching, if you sin after you've been baptized, you are in, in danger of judgment. I remember asking him as he had all these, you know, Bible verses up that's even on these signs that seem to support his perspective. I remember asking him, so are you telling me that if I get in an argument with my parents, you know, and I, you know, I dishonor my parents, which is a sin, and I'm, I'm really angry with them, and maybe I cuss them out, and I were to hop in my car and, and drive somewhere and get in a car accident that when I die, I'd go to hell. And he looked at me right in the face and said, yes, you would. I bring that up, a little side story to go, well, you know, this is a question people were wrestling with back in the medieval church. What happens when someone who's been baptized, who's supposed to be a new creature, new creation, washed free of their sins, continues to sin? Well, penance was the sacrament that was supposed to cover that process. So let's say after you've been baptized, you steal a loaf of bread from the market. In order to be forgiven of that sin on Judgment Day, the Catholic Church was teaching in the late medieval period that, that you need grace to cover that sin. Well, how do you get that grace? What you need to do, this is what the church had developed, and this is all, guys, you know, I feel like this is a side trail from our problem of evil discussion, but it really isn't. You'll see how, hopefully see how this gets connected in a moment. You need to confess that sin. So you get caught stealing the loaf of bread. You've already been baptized. You're supposed to be a Christian. You're going to need grace again, right? This is some of the issue that we'll see later Luther gets into. So what you do is you have to confess that sin with a sincere heart to someone the church considers an authorized agent on God's behalf. Now, who can be that authorized agent? Can you be the authorized agent for yourself? Can you, after you've sinned, realize that you've sinned, go into your closet by yourself and repent? No, not according to the Catholic Church at this time. How about your neighbor? Could you go to your neighbor who's a Christian? Maybe even one that you feel like he never sins, you know, he leads a righteous life. And can you go confess that sin to your Christian neighbor? Well, no. That authorized agent has to be someone recognized by the institutional authority of the Catholic Church. You'll need to confess to a priest. But... Here's the catch, and this is where this got tricky, right? Confession may not be all that you have to do. And by Luther's day, it certainly wasn't. You are still indebted to God's justice. And in order to have that debt satisfied, the priest will recommend certain actions to, to limit your time in the post-mortem purgatory, again, an idea that developed in the Catholic Church, where, where you will stay until you have paid all of your sin debts. Now, understanding this is really, really important because I think, you know, for people that 
have grown up in Protestant traditions, and, and maybe they don't find this whole justification framework that seems to really be focused on like a, a legal indebtedness to our sins and the wrath of God and all of that, all of that stuff, you know, they might, if you've grown up in that, some of that language, you might go, I don't find that to be helpful anymore, but you need to understand where people like Luther were coming from. And they, they had to deal with this theology that was normal of their time in which, again, you have to, you have this debt that you still are going to have to pay off if you've created it again, right? So it's not that just baptism covered all of your past sins and Christ's work does that for you, but afterwards, you know, in a certain sense, what the, the church had been teaching was, you know, not just that confession is good for your soul. In fact, it, it really is. You know, even someone like myself that, again, comes from an evangelical background, I see the value of confessing to someone else, confessing even to a pastor, you know, confessing to someone you um, submit yourself to in some sort of a spiritual authority, someone that you look to for guidance, a mentor, right? I see the value in that, but that's not what was going on. It's not just confession is good for your heart. We might say good for your soul. It's like your, your soul in a very metaphysical sense needs to confess. And not only that, you may still be indebted to God's justice in a way that you're going to have to work to pay off. And if you don't, well, you're not going to go to hell, but you will go to purgatory where you're going to have to keep working to pay off your sin debts. Now, that seems like a big debt on your shoulders, right? You got the sin debt, like how am I going to pay it off? Well, good news. Well, sort of good news. You don't have to pay that debt alone. (laughs) You can depend in this medieval Catholic period, this Catholic theology of the medieval period, you can depend on something that was called the, quote, treasury of merit, which has has the deposits of Christ's goodness, the goodness of saints from the past, that you can actually make withdrawals from through the Pope, because the, the Pope is God's authorized agent in the world, like he's on top of the institutional church's hierarchy, the church is the vehicle for God's will in the world. It's got Christ's body in the world. There's no salvation outside of the church. You know, that was the doctrine of the church from about the, you know, about the fourth century onward. No salvation outside of the church. So the Pope has access to the treasury of merit. And you can make withdrawals through the Pope and through the Pope. You know, the Pope sits atop of the hierarchy of the institutional church. But he also has authorized agents that are working under the authority and jurisdiction of the institutional church who can access the treasury of merit for you. Does this feel exhausting to you? And again, I, I don't mean to upset any of you Catholic listeners out there. Um, that's not my intention. Hopefully you can see, even as you listen to this, that there was a necessary need for reform. And there were Catholics who were reformers who were trying to deal with this issue. Okay, so that was penance, but what what were indulgences then? I know this seems like a long detour, but it isn't. It's a really important point. Indulgences developed as a way of paying to get access to that treasury of merit and shorten your sentence of penance, both here and in purgatory. The church, the Catholic church, people like Pope Leo X, developed this really elaborate system, which was like, well, you know, you might have to do this amount of work for this period of time to make right for your sins, or you might have to pay that off in purgatory. But here, we got a deal for you. You know, if you actually just give more of your money to the church to support the church's mission, to build us a new cathedral, et cetera, et cetera, you know, sadly, to line the pockets of the Pope and the cardinals who were often living incredibly lavish, um, uh, you know, no pun intended, indulgent lifestyles uh, on the off of the money given by people sitting very, very low on the socioeconomic hierarchy. Indulgences were a way. You could go, hey, you know, your priest might tell you, you know what, here's the deal, bud. You know, you got all this penance that you need to do, but we can cut it short, you know, if you give this much money. 
which leads you to really wonder if you're you're somebody that doesn't know any better you probably can't actually read if you're living in germany at the time you're a common person you know you you might not be able to read at all <laughs> you know much less uh read the Bible for yourself and understand these things as being probably contradictory to Scripture. So you might go, well, how much am I willing to pay to have my debts canceled and to get to paradise quicker and maybe to even have mortal sins paid off, which you could do. The Pope had the authority to to redeem you as of the you know vicarious agent of Christ to redeem you from even mortal sins and those were sins in the catholic church that were that were like you did this you're instantly damned bro <laughs> you know so you could get off of those even with really um high level indulgences luther's justification by grace through faith alone his emphasis on this must be understood in light of this context and when you understand the political ramifications of his theology, you can understand why the Roman Catholic Church excommunicated him in 1521. Again, Luther just started off by wanting to challenge this indulgence system. He thought for certain, you know, he was really well-intended as he posts the 95 Theses. It's evident when you read it. It's like, hey, Pope, can you check this out? I think it's a problem. You should probably be made aware of it. It's not again like they had Twitter back then, and you you know you know the Pope could just hop online or get an email or watch video of what's happening in local you know dioceses like in Wittenberg. That's not happening, right? So news travels much more slowly. Luther's trying to get the Pope's attention, and then he finds out, oh, this is a way bigger problem. The church has got to reform. And then that led Luther into a whole other list of other reforms. And again, it was the indulgence system, the corruption of the indulgence system that led Luther to realize, no, 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 hang on a second. It's justification by grace through faith alone. We have one high priest, Jesus, our mediator. And so this is really, really important in history because not only does it change the history of theology, it changes the history of government, of political power. When you don't have to, when you don't have to submit yourself to papal authority, if you can have access to, to God through one high priest Jesus, if you can confess your sins one to another, if you don't have to worry about salvation, you know, salvation being um, barred from you because you've been excommunicated from the Catholic Church, the church loses power in politics and over the minds of people. So this is a big deal. Now, with that in mind, do you need to understand that Luther comes from an Augustinian tradition? So it's, you know, it's not like Luther's just throwing, he, he doesn't throw out the entirety of the church tradition. In fact, as a friar in the Augustinian tradition, Luther sees himself, just like Calvin does afterwards, as being the person who's kind of bringing back the true historic church. He's not trying to start a Protestant church. He's trying to reform the church, and then he realizes at some point that, you know, the, the reform isn't happening. And he sees himself as kind of building the true church back in the in, via the tradition of St. Augustine. Now, while Luther comes from this Augustinian tradition and was a friar within the Augustinian tradition, you, you might suspect that he perhaps held to a form of philosophical idealism like Augustine. And we talked about that in the previous episode, actually, on Aquinas, the difference between Augustine's idealism and Aquinas's realism. So if you haven't listened to that, that might be a good opportunity. Pause this one, go back, check that out. So was Luther a idealist like Augustine? No. Was he a realist like Aquinas? No. Luther held to a perspective in philosophy called nominalism. While Augustine and his Platonic philosophy might have felt like there was a, let's say, an abstract spiritual basketball that our souls recognize when we see lesser material basketballs of varying sizes and colors, Luther denied this. A basketball is only a name we give. 
to our sensory experiences of an object that share the common features of something we call a basketball. It does very little good, it does little good at all for us to speculate beyond these experiences. And in that way, we actually see influence of William of Occam's thought. You know the famous Occam's razor? The simplest theory is most likely to be the best explanation. This this is very much Luther's philosophical underpinnings. This is actually why we don't see complex metaphysical systems of philosophy from Luther like we do with someone like Aquinas. Luther sees it as little practical or realistic good for us to spend time contemplating the things that we may never know for certain. Now, all of this may have seemed a bit like a sort of a rabbit trail in church history, but it does all lead up to this point to help you understand then Luther's theology about the problem of evil, Luther's theology around suffering. When it comes to the problem of evil, Luther doesn't delve into complex cosmology like Origen or or lay out some sort of complex systematic philosophy like Aquinas, nor does he give himself to systematic theology in the same way that the reformer who follows him, John Calvin, does. And this is why reading Luther and trying to figure out where he stands on evil and suffering can actually be confusing, as it appears he isn't consistent in a systematic way. This might also be why, if you've ever interacted with Lutherans, that Lutherans historically are not given to systematic theology in the same way reformers from the Calvinist tradition are. Luther wasn't a systematic theologian in the same way Calvin was. There's very little variation between Calvinists of different stripes and colors today on uh, probably the essentials of Calvin's theological system. You might have some what you call four-point Calvinists versus five-point Calvinists. You certainly have Calvinists that are cessationists versus not cessationists. And you do, oddly enough, you have some Calvinists in the Baptist tradition, right? This is especially the case. You might have some Calvinists that are dispensationalists in their eschatology instead of covenantal like Calvin was. You know, and those are, I don't want to minimize those differences, but you get with Lutherans, right? And, you know, if you've ever had this, you know, sort of college dorm room debate before between, you know, someone that might consider themselves a Calvinist versus someone that might consider themselves an Arminian, you know, the the, the Lutheran doesn't fit neatly probably into one of those categories and might not even care that much. Now, this doesn't mean that Lutherans, though Lutherans today, and this that's a very much an oversimplification, there are many systematic Lutheran theologians and scholars today. Um, Luther Seminary here in Minnesota produ- has produced some wonderful systematic theologians. Doesn't This doesn't mean that Luther himself made no contributions to discussion on evil and suffering just because they can be, it can be a bit more confusing to read Luther. Quite the opposite. In fact, Luther makes some significant and very original contributions to discussions on evil and suffering. For Luther, there's ultimately no rational way to solve the problem of why God allows evil. But here are some of the core convictions of Martin Luther. First of all, God is omnipotent. For Luther, God's omnipotence means his ultimate responsibility for everything, even evil and suffering. And we're going to spend a lot more time trying to unpack that. We could also say that another core conviction of Luther is the centrality of Adam and Eve's sin as the cause, the root cause for all evils in the world, including natural evils. Before the fall of Adam and Eve, again, for Luther, these are not like archetypes, but they actually are for Luther, the first historical human couple. 
Before that, everything on earth was in a state of perfection, free of all suffering. There were no weeds, no poison, no natural disasters. There weren't even bedbugs. Everything from weeds to mosquitoes to illness and earthquakes exists now to remind humans of their sin and the wrath of God against sin. And as we're going to see later, Calvin continues on in this tradition. This is an important point, a side point here, because oftentimes, as we've discussed before, even when I had uh, Dr. Jim Stump from BioLogos on, and we talked a bit about you know evolutionary creationism, this is still a sticking point for many people today as they wrestle with questions about the age of the earth and wrestle with questions regarding um, evolution, uh, regarding the the scientific reality that humans have been along on planet Earth for a much longer time than six to 10,000 years ago. And one of the, the traditional questions surrounding that, again, not to get off into another tangent here, but this is just an important point. Many people, especially in the Protestant tradition, who have a much harder time with this, evangelicals have a much harder time, is because in many ways they're theological descendants of Luther and Calvin. Catholics, by and large part, Eastern Orthodox, Catholics don't nearly have the same problem with this notion of, well, was there actually weeds and natural disasters before Adam and Eve right? Even if you, again, affirm a, a historical Adam and Eve, and somehow, though you affirm a historical Adam and Eve, you also are affirming that they, they weren't like the first homo sapiens to ever exist. So for people in this evangelical tradition, which is a descendant of Luther and Calvin by and large part, the biblical narrative, again, usually tells the story of Genesis 1 and 2 in this sort of way into Genesis 3, that there were, weren't even things like mosquitoes or illness. You know, Ken Ham famously, you know, talks about another, you know, young earth creation scientist, how in the Garden of Eden, you know, lions wouldn't have even eaten lambs. They probably, you know, maybe that they were biologically even different. A lot of this can be traced, again, to the necessity and the centrality of the fall and the blaming of all of the world's evil on Adam and Eve can be traced in many ways to Luther's theology surrounding the fall. So I think that's an important side point that might be helpful. So Adam and Eve, their sin before that in the garden, the garden was a perfect state free of all suffering. No weeds, nothing. I mean, lions didn't eat lambs. Right, um, you didn't have you didn't have mosquito bites. Golly, would that be wonderful? <laughs> A world free of mosquitoes. But for Lu- uh, for Luther, Adam and Eve screwed that whole thing up, and so even natural, what we call natural evils, uh, or have called natural evils, uh, can be traced back to human sin. Another core conviction of Luther is that since God is omnipotent. Nothing happens apart from God's will. Even our own choices that we perceive as being free are not actually free. And this is where reading Luther gets a little bit tricky because he's not as systematic as Calvin. And Calvin, in many ways, lays out his thought process, and sometimes he seems brutally harsh, but what you actually see with Calvin is a a systematic, logical consistency. For Luther, even though we are in a sense predestined to sin, that our will is bound and incapable of choosing the good, this is a necessary experience for us. We, we need to actually experience God against us and withdrawn from us. Quote, you exalt us when you humble us. You make us righteous when you make us sinners. You lead us to heaven when you cast us into hell. You grant us the victory when you cause us to be defeated. You give life when you permit us to be killed. God operates in the world opus alienum Dei, or through the alien works of God. For Luther, these alien works are experienced as terrible suffering, 
and, and they make one feel the hiddenness of God. But this is even part of God's plan. This is part of God's goal. The goal of these, quote, alien works, these opus alienum day, which may fill us with fear, even fill us with awestruck terror, is the adium contra diem, or fleeing from God to God, where we experience the proper works of God, the opus proprium day. These proper works of God are God's workings such as forgiveness and mercy. And it's only because the limitations of our knowledge and perspective that we see the proper works and the alien works of God as contrary. For Luther, the cross is the ultimate example of the harmony of the alien and proper works of God. God's mercy and forgiveness is revealed as his son experiences pain, shame, and abandonment on the cross. God's Son experiences the alien works of God. Life is brutal and full of pain, and and God himself experienced this in Christ. God in Christ has experienced alienation. One must accept that God brings the judgment and the mercy together For Luther, this is central. The goal isn't to understand evil and suffering, but is to have simply to have faith and trust God in evil and suffering. Seeing the cross as the harmony and the the coming together of mercy and judgment. At the cross, we see the alien works of God and the proper works of God. We see his judgment and his mercy together. And the goal of the Christian life is to live in faith as we look at the cross and see that suffering and mercy, alienation, the hiddenness of God and God's forgiveness are mingled together and we must trust him. This is from Charlene P.E. Burns' book that we've been referring to throughout this podcast. Quote, For Luther, God is the creative source of life and the destructive power of the cosmos that seems indifferent to us. End quote. We could say, using some terminology we've used very early on in the series, that Luther returned to a monistic theodicy, one that is very in keeping with Augustine and very in keeping with perhaps a Old Testament-centric hermeneutic of Scripture. So in everything, whether we perceive it to be good or bad, for Luther, we should turn to God because, quote, everything is sent by God whether it comes from devil or man, God chastens in two ways, end quote. Now, Luther has no problem with the reality and activity of Satan. As was the case with Aquinas earlier, in this late medieval world, the presence and activity of Satan is assumed by most people, right? It's not the same as today's problems where we live in a materialist, uh, physicalist framework and It's hard to convince anybody of the existence of any sort of spiritual entity or spiritual domain, much less one in which there is a, you know, fallen angel or a evil spiritual principality. That's a problem for us today. Wasn't a problem in the late medieval church. Everybody believed in Satan, right? We talked about that with Aquinas, who again is you know, several hundred years before Luther, but it's still the same in Luther's day. What's really interesting, though, about Luther is that his theology somehow makes him unafraid of Satan, right? This is one of perhaps the existential benefits of Luther's theodicy, Luther's theology about the problem of evil and suffering. And as weird and maybe as horrified as some of you are as you listen to Luther's theology, and maybe it doesn't make sense to you, Hopefully, at least you can see that in this framework, Luther need not be afraid of Satan. Satan is just a vicious dog on God's leash. And if that's the case, then Luther thinks, we've got nothing to fear. And what also may seem odd to modern readers, even Christian readers, who actually do believe in the reality of Satan, was how frequently Luther thought Satan actually spoke and showed up in his life. (laughs) Quote, It was not unique 
unheard of thing for the devil to thump about and haunt houses. In our monasteries at Wittenberg, I heard him distinctly. I was sitting in the refectory after we had sung, studying and writing my notes, when the devil came and thudded three times in the storage chamber. I also heard him once over my chamber, but when I realized it was Satan, I rolled over and went back to sleep." End quote. In another famous incident, Luther woke in the middle of the night to find what he thought was the devil in his room. Quote, the devil rebuked me and reproached me, arguing that I was a sinner. To this I replied, tell me something new, devil. End quote. Luther's theology allows him to not fear Satan because he doesn't actually see any real threat coming from Satan. Satan is just a dog, a barking dog on God's leash. Luther saw the will as a beast between two riders. One rider is God and the other rider is Satan. You're just the beast. You don't have any say on which one moves your will. Luther laid this out in his book called The Bondage of the Will. This book was actually a response to another contemporary living in Luther's time, a guy by the name of Erasmus. And Erasmus had written a book entitled The Free Will, which was part of Erasmus's effort to reform the church through a call to ethical living. While Luther thought that free will was a, quote, name without a reality, end quote, Erasmus' perspective was that God actually had foreknowledge of all things, including our choices, but that foreknowledge didn't mean that our choices are predestined. In many ways, this is quite in keeping with the Catholic Church's theology, at least most of the Catholic Church, especially those who followed the work and thought of Thomas Aquinas. Foreknowledge is a foregone conclusion. God has foreknowledge of all things because he exists outside of time. Again, these are sort of the, the classical Christian understandings of God, perhaps borrowed by Platonic thought, Greek thought. But again, for Erasmus, foreknowledge doesn't mean predestination. Erasmus thought that Luther's position was totally insane. Well, why would God give commands at all if we had no ability to follow? Luther thought that was the point. God gave the law to break us into total and utter dependence on him. The point of showing the law, and maybe if you've grown up in any sort of evangelical church, you might be familiar with this sort of framework of understanding the Apostle Paul, right? It was, we read Paul in many ways in a very Lutheran way, even if you don't go to a Lutheran church, of course. This is carried on by Calvin again, after Luther. But God gives the law to show us that we can't do the law, right? Erasmus thought that was insane. That can't be the point of it. God gives commands that we can't actually do. What does that make God? Is he a deceiver? Is he a liar then? Yeah, you can see how this debate would go back and forth between the two. When it comes to theodicy, or that question we started the entire series with, right? How can God be both all good and all powerful if evil exists? Luther didn't think that God needed to be defended at all. In a sense, you could say Luther didn't do theodicy, though he kind of does. For Luther, God is all-powerful and responsible for evil. When it comes to those alien acts of God, those things that we experience in the world as suffering and evil, quote, God is not to be excused, but is to be trusted, end quote. Remember again for Luther, as Charlene P.E. Burns put it, God is the creative source of all life and apparently the indifferent destructive power of the cosmos? How far out do we take that? What are the implications of that thought, of this idea that God need not be excused, that he is all-powerful and responsible for everything that happens? What happens if we extrapolate those implications even into areas like salvation? Again, you have to keep in mind, at this point in church history— Universalism, the universalism of Origen and of Gregory of Nyssa has gone completely away, right? That's, that's not an option. You know, it's not an option for Luther or Calvin. You know, there's no universalism here among the Reformers. 
and neither is the other category of um, that that's different from eternal conscious torment called some people call annihilation or others may call conditional immortality. That's not really an option for Luther or Calvin either. For Luther, we are living within a framework in which what happens to the lost is that they are damned to eternal conscious torment. So what about, what are the implications of God's omnipotence on issues related to salvation? Well, even the damnation of the lost for Luther is part of God's incomprehensible will. Yes, it might look like a contradiction to us that Christ weeps over the lost that will spend eternity in hell while simultaneously predestining them to that fate. But we should trust God's wisdom and power. Quote, All things, whatever arise from and depend on the divine appointment, whereby it was foreordained who should receive the word of life and who should disbelieve it, who should be delivered from their sins and who should be hardened in them, and who should be justified and who should be condemned. End quote. Now, many Lutherans today don't believe in what we might call double predestination and think that this was something only Calvin taught. They may prefer to think of it as single predestination, that God simply predestined the elect to receive salvation, but that he hasn't predestined vessels of dishonor to damnation. Right? This single predestination is typically the claim, right, of of Augustine and Augustinian theology. You know, God's only predestining those to be saved. He hasn't predestined those who are vessels of dishonor to damnation. You know, that was Calvin, right? It's clear, though, that if someone reads Luther, that Luther sees himself as the rightful defender of Augustinian theology. He, he was, after all, an Augustinian friar. You see, during the scholastic period, there was a distinction made between the ways that God's foreknowledge makes a particular human action necessary. They might have called it something like absolute necessity and conditional necessity. Let's do a little thought experiment here to help us understand these different categories and why Luther doesn't really think there should be much of a division between them at all. When Judas betrayed Jesus, scholastics in the tradition of Aquinas would likely contend that God foreknew Judas would betray Jesus. Judas was not forced by absolute necessity to do so, though. He could have changed his mind because he has free will. So that makes this a conditional necessity. It's, con it's necessary because God foreknows it, but it's a conditional necessity because it's based on the condition that Judas could have changed his mind. Luther simply says what you may be thinking as you listen to those descriptions. What's the actual difference? God foreknows that Judas won't change his mind, so Judas could actually do no different than what God already foreknew, foreknown, in advance, right? Could Judas have done otherwise than to betray Christ? Well, no. This is the thing that Luther picks up on. He's like, again, it's sort of the, the Occam's razor thing. The simplest answer is the best. Judas was not free to do otherwise. His will was bound to Satan as its rider. Judas could not have done otherwise than to betray Christ. Now, Luther might not be as direct as Calvin in explaining that this flows as part of God's divine decree, and in many ways, Calvin is more than happy to you know, to deal with people's um, reactions to what he sees is just, guys, this is just logical, right? What's the difference? What is the difference between calling something an absolute necessity and a conditional necessity if it's still a necessity? Yeah, this is a problem, right? For Luther, though, it's more, Luther's emphasis is really more going back to these two riders analogy. For Luther, it's really about who, where is your will bound, you know, who's, who are you, who is your will bound to? Because you actually, your will isn't free. Is it bound 
to Christ or is it bound to Satan? Judas's was bound to Satan, so he inevitably was going to betray Christ. Now, in some cases, it does seem like Luther has no problem with the idea of someone's will who's bound to Satan choosing between robbing a bank and murdering somebody, right? Like, you know, his point isn't, and this is where, again, because he's not as systematic as Calvin, it's really hard to discern sometimes what Luther's actually thinking. And this is why, you know, you might have diversity, more diversity of opinion among Lutherans today than you would Calvinists on this subject. But, you know, for, for Luther, he's like, well, it doesn't matter. The point is that your will is bound to that rider, Satan. And until he is dispossessed of that position and Christ sits enthroned on his saddle, the saddle of your heart, then you're, you're going to continue to will towards what isn't good. Again, for Luther, it's Occam's razor. The simplest answer is the best. Judas was not free to do otherwise. Now, obviously, this brings up all sorts of questions about if Judas was not free to do otherwise, how can he be morally responsible for his choice? This is the thing that drove Erasmus insane about Luther. He's like, you know, he sees this as a threat to all of ethics and morality and sees it as, this wouldn't have been his word, but ultimately, like, nihilistic. This, this leads to nihilism. How can we be morally responsible for our choices? How could we even say, well, Judas did something wrong if he wasn't free to do other than what he did? Luther prefers to not try and solve this apparent contradiction at all. He believes it's just unsolvable to human minds. God is sovereign, and he is good. And we should simply have faith in his sovereignty and goodness. John Calvin lived from 1509 to 1564. Calvin was a second-generation reformer from France who fled his home country to escape imprisonment for his beliefs and his teachings. He eventually settled in Geneva, Switzerland and, and set up a hybrid church-state government. Laws were enforced by church elders, and the punishments for disagreeing with Calvin's theology or participating in what the, the church considered immoral behavior were notoriously fierce, right? There was no dancing in Geneva. That would get you in a lot of trouble. Maybe you've wondered if you've attended a more Protestant uh, and conservative Protestant school or college, why maybe they didn't allow dancing on campus. Well, you can kind of thank Calvin for that. During Calvin's first five years of governance in Geneva, 76 people were exiled and 58 people were executed. Now, I bring this up not to make Calvin a villain. Both he and Luther, and by the way, Luther wrote some terribly anti-Semitic treatises later in his life, which the Nazi movement eventually used as a guide for the anti-Semitic movement. You ever heard of Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass? That happened on Martin Luther's birthday. Luther and Calvin are men of their medieval times, and I don't say that to give them any sort of pass. Many of you who listen to this podcast might be fairly anti-Calvin. Some of you might be Calvinists. The point in exploring Calvin would be to help both of you see, those of you that have been anti-Calvin, how Calvin is not insane, right? And those of you that are card-carrying Calvinists, you have wonderful facial hair, you drink craft beers, and you smoke pipes as you read Institutes of the Christian Religion, might also want to acknowledge there's some flaws here. If Calvin's theology leads him in any way to act this way in the world, would you want to live in Geneva? Even those of you who have your card-carrying Calvinist um, memberships, would you want to leave in Geneva, live in Geneva, Switzerland? Probably not. Point is, both of these men, though, they're men of their times. And so I want to I bring this up right in the get-go as we talk about Calvin, because some of you might pause that have this very anti-Calvin attitude. You might go, I don't need to hear anything more from this guy, because I know this stuff. I know what he did to Servetus. And, you know, that's another story for another time. I, I know what it was like in Geneva. You know, 
I, I just totally disagree with this guy. Please take some time here to not just dismiss Calvin because Calvin was a brilliant mind and he, and he was much more of a systematic theologian than Luther. If you want to understand the roots, if you're a Protestant of any shape or, or color, you know, need to understand your roots here. Calvin was a trained lawyer, and this is evident in both how he did his theology and his theology of justification, which again is a big deal in a world that's still wrestling with this whole penance system and indulgences. The most famous of Calvin's works is his masterpiece, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Again, while he's far more systematic in his writings than Luther, Calvin actually doesn't veer that far from Luther's theology, including Luther's views on evil, suffering, human will, and salvation. And that's why it took so much time to discuss Luther. Again, Calvin is a second-generation reformer. He is in many ways carrying on Luther's work. And like, Lu- like Luther, Calvin sees himself as carrying on the true Augustinian tradition, the, the true teachings and doctrines of the church. Like Luther, Calvin believed human sin was the cause of even natural evils. Everything from frost to mosquitoes is caused by the fall of Adam. He agreed with Luther's concept of the hiddenness of God and his alien acts. God's purposes in the world are a secret to us, some of which are revealed by faith in him, but Others remain undisclosed to humanity. He agreed that the devil was real, but that he works for God and is, quote, employed to instigate the reprobate, end quote. The elect, or those that God has predestined to be saved, need not fear Satan or his demons. Like Luther, Calvin has no fear of Satan. What Luther seemed to have implied about God's predestination and salvation Calvin makes far more clear, quote, By predestination, we mean the eternal decree of God, by which he determined with himself whatever he wished to happen with regard to every man. All are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, election, others to eternal damnation, reprobation, end quote. Evil is a function of God's design, part of his will. It's part of his divine will. And we don't understand it, but for Calvin, our goal is to trust that God is just and good. To question God's decrees, to, to question God's will, whether they are the secondary cause of suffering or the secondary cause of pleasure, is to sin in pride. God decided before the foundations of the world who would be saved and who would be damned to eternal conscious torment. Calvin is well aware of how terrible this sounds, but to him, this is not only what he believes the scriptures teach, especially the Apostle Paul, but he thinks this is just a logical necessity if one is going to believe the same metaphysical claims about God that Augustine and Aquinas believed. If God exists outside of time, then all of history is in a sense a settled fact to God. And if God is all-powerful, then it's logically necessary that history, which God has created and exists outside of, is happening just as he planned it. For Calvin, it's like, you know, the question is, so are things not going the way God wants them to? And to answer yes, to answer yes is a, a challenge, not just to his omnipotence, it's not just a challenge to the way Calvin reads the Bible, but it's, it is a challenge to the entire metaphysical system by which we believe God is the ground of being, these categories, these metaphysical categories that we've traced all the way back even to, to origin and we see laid out in Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theological. Calvin is a systematic theologian and theologian, and he, he's thinking about the philosophical implications of this, right? So it seems to Calvin this is just a logical necess- necessity, and he just so happens to have the guts, or, or he uh, just would have scored really, really low in the Big Five personality test in agreeableness, right? He's low in agreeableness, so he doesn't feel the need to have people agree with him or to be liked about uh, what, what, he has, what he has to say or believe. 
you know, Calvin is just like, this is logically necessary. How can it not be? God created and exists outside of time. It's happening just as he planned it. And as much as this sounds brutal, this also means that not only has he just predestined the the saved, the predestined, the elect, he's also, it's just logically necessary, guys. He's predestined vessels of dishonor. Now, one of the obvious questions that comes up right away, and you hear this in, you know, those sort of college dorm room debates between Calvinists and Arminians, free will theists and Calvinists, etc., is, well, okay, if this is true, doesn't this just totally, shouldn't this just Doesn't this totally destroy any desire that we should have to care for the world and the people around us? Does it it kill efforts for evangelism because, you know, it's already a settled fact? No. Calvin says no. He says says that we have to say no. This this actually, we do, we must continue to desire and to care for the world and the people around it because we have no idea who the elect and the reprobate are. So we have to act as if everyone we encounter is possibly part of the elect who have been pre-appointed by God to receive eternal life. You don't know it. You have no clue. You'll never know. So you have to act in the world as if everybody were the elect, even though you know they're not. I bring this up because, you know, I mean, even now I'm in a, I'm in a, church context in a setting where there are Calvinists and people that aren't Calvinists. And this, I don't think, like, just as a side point here, this can be such a contentious point. And I certainly have my own opinions. The purpose of this series isn't for me to lay out my opinions. I'll, I'll eventually, at the end, give my own. My, my hope here is just to almost act as a tour guide right now to go through history and to maybe just help you hear the perspective that you've not been able to entertain before. You know, Calvinists, for those of you that are Arminians, Catholics who believe in free will theism, you know, free, you know, free will, um, open theists, Molinists, who, and we'll talk about those categories in upcoming podcasts. You know, so many of you take, you can take the position of a guy like a David Bentley Hart, who I, I really love David Bentley Hart as a philosopher. Maybe some of you have kept up with his, a bit of his new book that he came out with, uh, Defending Universalism. And in it, you know, more than probably even a defensive universalism, it's an attack on Calvin and Calvinism, an attack on ideas like eternal conscious torment. I hope that you would be able to see that functionally and existentially, you know, a, a Christian that might hold to a different perspective than a Calvinist can actually work side by side with a Calvinist in a very functional way. If the Calvinist actually takes Calvin's advice, which is like, you have no idea who the elect are and the reprobate are, so you have to act as everyone is elect. Now, this is not that different than maybe the Wesleyan or Arminian position, which is like, Christ's work has actually atoned for all. It's not limited atonement, right? Christ's work is for everyone, and we just don't know who will receive it. Both of you go out to spread the good news, to care for the world, et cetera, et cetera, right? In theory, in theory, right, there should be no functional difference because both people should hopefully see the person in front of them as someone that God loves, right? At least from their perspective, they don't know it. They don't know whether or not, and even the Calvinists would say, well, God even loves the reprobate even as he's hating them, <laughs> you know, which this is, this is why this is such a contested area of debate. And I don't want to get off into a total sidebar just on that point, but this is really crucial to Christian discussion about evil and suffering. While Luther had a Rasmus debate on free will, predestination, and salvation, Calvin had his own rival, Jacobus Arminius, or Jacob Arminius. The only difference is Arminius and Calvin never met. They never actually wrote to each other. In fact, Calvin died when Arminius was only four years old. So in reality, this particular debate was a third generation of the Reformation debate between the next generation of Calvinists and Jacobus Arminius and his followers. Arminius believed that the doctrine of predestination and limited atonement made God evil, and it made the scriptures nonsensical. 
This is not all that different than the argument that Erasmus was making. And in fact, some could even point back to earlier debates, much earlier debates in church history between Augustine and Julian of Aclanum. But in Protestant circles and evangelical circles, you might likely hear this whole argument about predestination, God's will, salvation, etc., framed as a debate between Arminians and Calvinists. Historically, in this Protestant tradition, Charismatics, Pentecostals, Wesleyans, and Methodists, and even Anabaptists and other general Baptists have rejected Calvinism, while Presbyterians, Reformed churches like the Dutch Reformed Church or the Christian Reformed Church, and Reformed and Calvinist Baptists have supported Calvin's views on predestination and salvation. Historically, Lutherans stayed out of the debate during the Reformation, but as we discussed in the podcast already, Luther himself probably had very similar views to Calvin. They just lack the same systematic coherence. This isn't, again, to be clear, discussions about predestination, about God's sovereignty and what that looks like in the world, and questions about salvation. It's a complete misnomer to reduce this debate to Calvinism versus Arminianism. We can go back to Luther, Erasmus, Augustus versus Pelagius or Julian, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, and Other second and third century church fathers certainly had their own viewpoints and can most likely be considered defenders of the free will position. My goal in this series isn't to build a case for or against any theological position in history, though I do hope to share some personal conclusions when the series is over. My goal, again, is to take you through the ideas of these men and allow you to compare, contrast, and evaluate them. You likely come into this episode with conviction one way or the other on predestination, foreknowledge, human will, salvation, etc. But can you see how the position that differs from yours isn't unreasonable? It's hard to argue with Luther's point that there doesn't seem to be any real difference between categories like absolute necessity or conditional necessity if in reality you can't actually do anything else than what God eternally foreknows. And as harsh as Calvin appears to some of you, even to me, perhaps he's just more brutally honest about the negligible difference between God eternally foreknowing what you will do at any given moment and saying, that God has caused or decreed what you will do in that moment. Question for those who want to defend the free will position is what does the structure of reality have to look like for you to affirm God is omniscient and yet still affirm that you're truly free in any given moment to do something different? Does it require us to believe that maybe God doesn't know everything or that maybe he doesn't exist out of time, or, or perhaps even maybe, maybe what we'd have to do is lay out a, a vast multiverse that somehow exists for every single possible outcome, for everything ranging from the movement of subatomic particles to whether you choose to do what is right or wrong in any given situation. In our upcoming episodes after the holidays, we'll explore some of these non-traditional attempts to defend the goodness of God and the freedom of the will from what some perceive to be as the inadequacies of classical Christian explanation. Well, friends, that concludes today's episode, and I'm so thankful that you've listened into it. I hope during the holiday season you have some opportunity not only just to enjoy time with family and friends and to live into the Christmas story and to celebrate the culmination of Advent, but that you'd also have an opportunity to reflect on this series so far and to maybe sort through your own thoughts. Who thus far that we've looked at have you found yourself in most agreement with? Has it been Origen? Has it been Gregory of Nyssa? Has it been Justin Martyr? Has it been Luther, Calvin, or Aquinas? Those that you find yourself in disagreement with, Can you pinpoint where specifically the disagreement comes from? Can you find a point in which you think that they're getting it wrong about the scriptures, or perhaps there's a hole in their logic somewhere? You don't do this to win an argument, but you do it to really try to understand someone's position on this subject more clearly. 
So I hope you have some time to ruminate on that. I'd love to hear from you guys. Please reach out to me as you're listening to this. Some of you have, and it's been really fun to dialogue back and forth with you to hear your perspective on this. I really love to hear from you guys as you finish up today's episode, whether you came in as someone you could just say against the sort of predestination views of Luther and Calvin, or of whether you came in in support of them, and whether or not thinking more about Calvin and Luther's theology did anything to affect your perspective one way or the other. I want to thank the Deep Talks Patreon community. This podcast doesn't happen without your support, guys. I want to give special thanks to Paul R., Luke H., Anne, Elizabeth, Michael H., Hannah P., Josh A., Sam, Tim, thank you guys. Those of you that are giving beyond even the, you know, the, the, the first point of entry to becoming a Patreon supporter, those of you that are kind of going above and beyond the call of duty here, thank you for your support. I hope you feel encouraged by the fact that what you're giving towards is helping other people sort through these really, really important subjects, these really important theological ideas to help them make better sense of it. And we haven't talked about this much so far, but, you know, we've been so deep into to church history and, and, and theology here that maybe we need a moment to step back and to reflect on how important this is, because the story that you believe about God and reality is the story that guides your life. And so those of you guys that have been supporting this and helping me help other people reevaluate the story they believe to make sure what they're holding on to is is true, good, and beautiful, that, that you guys are equal participants in this. So thank you guys for your support. I'm so appreciative of it. If those of you that are listening to this podcast want to support this podcast, I've got a goal here. We're, we're trying to get up to 300 patrons, and we're, we're not there. We're, 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 we're ways away from from that. And at that level, I'll be able to sustain doing weekly episodes and move into, I really have goals to do more video work too as well, video content for YouTube. And so your support can make that happen. Um, so you can find out more in the link to description in the description. There's also bonus perks for people that are in the Patreon community, or at least special episodes. I sometimes put out like charts and things like that for those of you that are really interested in, in going deeper on this stuff. If you're not ready to do that, or maybe you are, another thing you can do that helps support this podcast is just leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews go a long way in helping other people find and discover this podcast. So go over to Apple Podcasts and, and leave a review. And for that, I would be incredibly grateful. If you're listening to this before the Christmas season, have a Merry Christmas, have a Happy New Year. I might put out some bonus material in the, the holiday weeks. It's possibly very unlikely. It's a busy time of year in the church and with family. So uh, if I don't get to talk to you, I'll talk to you again in 2020.